Welcome back, everyone. This is The Change Log, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 171. And on today's show, we're joined by Karen Meyer, the author of Living Closure. She's also known as Giga Squid on Twitter, GitHub, and pretty much everywhere else on the interwebs. She's speaking soon if you're going to be at Strange Loop, talking about chemical computing, a very interesting conversation we had on this show today. She's also the author of Babar, a little language for machines with speech acts. We have three awesome sponsors for the show today, CodeShip, Imagix, and DigitalOcean. Our first sponsor for the show today is CodeShip, launching a brand new feature called Organizations. You've heard me mention it before. Now you can create teams, set permissions for your teams, and improve collaboration in your delivery workflows. Maintain centralized control over your organization's projects as well as your teams with this brand new feature. And we want you to save 20%, that's huge, off any premium plan for three months by using this code, the Changelog Podcast. Again, that code is the Changelog Podcast. Head to codeship.com slash the Changelog to get started. And now onto the show. All right, everybody, we're back today. We got Karen Meyer. Uh, Jerry, we set up this call through Twitter. How crazy, right? It's a crazy world out there. Crazy world. So what was going on to invite Karen onto the show? Probably just my interest in closure. And um, I came across Karen. I guess I came across her on the ThoughtBot podcast over the summer at some point. Nice shout out to them. And then somebody retweeted her or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, that face is familiar. And then I checked her bio. And I was like, oh, she should come on and talk about talk to us about closure and that was kind of the genesis of it well i'm happy to be here very gracious of you to respond so quickly and be so willing to come on we appreciate it yeah absolutely so karen i guess maybe the easy way to start would be uh, i think your bio says a bit about you being starting in ballet and then physics and then ultimately in software development but when someone asks you kind of who you are what's your response yeah, well, I, I usually just say I'm a, I'm a closure developer because um, that's what I, I do every day and I quite enjoy it. And um, yeah, I, I guess that pretty much just sums it up. <laughs> I got to it from a very windy path, uh, like many people. Uh, so I started, um, I was a professional ballet dancer for a couple of years right out of high school. And that was really cool. And I really uh, enjoyed it, except for uh, the starving artist bit, right. <laughs> which got a little bit old, like sleeping on floors with mattresses and cockroaches and things like that. So I decided maybe going going to college would be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Very pragmatic choice. Exactly. So when I was in um, high school, I, I really I, I liked physics and math, and in particular. I had a really nice role model um, for my physics instructor. She was an awesome woman. And so I was super impressed with her. And there was this one moment that I always remember in physics that kind of I always went back to. I don't know if you did this sort of experiment in, in school where you kind of line up ramps that marbles can run on. And then you kind of measure everything all out and you predict where the marble will land in, in a cup. Mm. And like I did all the math and everything and released the marble and it landed perfectly in the cup. What? And I, was, I was like, wow, this math physics stuff is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I had a similar experience recently at the Science Center where they had this ramp where you can roll balls down it. And if you put it at certain intervals with 
you know, with, you know, basic multiplication, you could determine what, um, what key it would hit, which would make a certain tone. And each nice. key down the line got bigger. And it was like two, four, six, eight. And, you know, you did the square root of things and that would determine where you would put it at on the ramp. And that, I mean, similar, that kind of blew my mind. Yeah. 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 I never had such a great experience. Maybe that's why I didn't like physics because I didn't have this awesome <laughs> moment in life. Well, I was just I amazed that you can do the math and be like, well, yeah. put this here and mm -hmm. you're going to hit that key there. And, you know, it's amazing. There's a great video of a college professor. I think it's a physics professor who I think he sets up like a, a bowling ball on the end of a chain or something. I may have the objects incorrect, but he does all the math like you just described, Karen. And he mm -hmm. actually swings it from a location at his own face. <laughs> and like he's going to die or be like seriously injured if the math is wrong. And it's a great learning moment, you know, for the class. And that's a, I saw that on the internet, but yeah, I never had such a, a great moment in physics. Yeah, so that, I, that, yeah. that, that told you that you love math basically. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of was a catalyst of where I wanted to stay. So I went back to um, college. I, I studied physics and really, really liked it. And then I kind of fell into um, computer science after that. But I have to ask you if you ever, I don't know if I'm completely weird, but like whenever I am taking off on planes, you know, like right at that moment where you just, the plane's going really fast and you just start taking off, I always say to myself, yay math. Yay math. <laughs> I do. Because it's really? so incredible. I'm like, yay math. Well, yeah, because they got to get to a certain speed by a certain mm -hmm. distance to actually yeah. lift off. And some somebody did the math right. I know. Hopefully. I just, Yay Sometimes humans, it doesn't yay work. Math. <laughs> That's cool. So, do you really like? Do you kind of whisper it a little bit, or is it just kind of like an inner voice? I, I'd say it like an inner voice because yeah. otherwise people start thinking that yeah, you're. Don't crazy. say it to the person sitting next to you. Like, <laughs> what? Well, that's a good conversation starter. Yay, math, and then you kind of go into who you are, what you do. That's yeah, right. I, I guess it could be. Oh, uh, have you uh, read this book, The Martian? I'm like the halfway through it right now. Have you heard about this? No. So they're making it into a movie um, with oh, Matt, Matt Damon. Damon. Yeah. yeah, yeah, in like September, October, and it's fabulous. I mean, if you like, uh, like space stuff, math Love stuff, space stuff, engineering, it's just fabulous. So it's it's a retelling basically of Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Mm -hmm. Like this engineer, he gets stranded, or astronaut, he gets stranded there. And um, strange circumstances of events, you know, his crew thinks he's dead, but he's really not. So he has to use all his engineering skills and everything else to, like, survive on Mars. And it's a total math and geek fest, and it's fabulous. So is it really, he's really right on now. Mars then? Yeah, yeah, he's really on Mars. Wow. Yeah. Cool. So I That's totally recommend story. that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh. So it's, you're, it's not a true story. Is that what you're saying, Jared? It's it's. I just I had to point that out. <laughs> right. I just needed to bring us back to reality there for a yeah. second. <laughs> uh, well, that's why I clarified is he really on Mars? Right. But I like it. I'm mad it's a Ridley fan. Scott movie too. Oh, see, yeah. see, we just talked about Ridley Scott <sighs> two shows ago with Prometheus. Yeah, see, he's fallen from grace a little bit with me. Although Adam liked Prometheus a lot, I liked the name Prometheus. What about you, Karen? Do you like Prometheus? Uh, I did not see that, so oh, okay. let's have to put that on my list. Yeah, put it on your so, list. It's definitely... Yeah. Or don't. Just one of the two. Home theater. <laughs> if you have home theater, do it on home theater. Don't just watch it on anything. Just home theater it if you can. Okay. <laughs> Anyways. Well, cool. So we got to learn a bit about ballet into physics and some of the 
appreciation you have for math and whatnot. So at what point did you start getting into software development and what was that like for you? Yeah, so I, I kind of got into software development doing physics. Um, I started programming in Mathematica, uh, doing computer simulations of um, some like simulated annealing. And that was like super interesting. Um, so after I graduated, uh, there was a lot of opportunities for software developers and they were looking for people in just general <laughs> science fields. Yeah. Um, so I just kind of fell into it that way and I discovered I really liked, um, especially the feedback of programming. I mean, if you mm -hmm. think of, um, a lot of the science experiments, you don't have the fast feedback a lot of times, <laughs> but in software development, you definitely do. And it's a bit artistic too, which I really like. Uh, so yeah, I did Java programming, uh, Ruby programming, and then I met Clojure and I just kind of fell in love with Clojure and, um, I've been lucky enough to work in it every day for the past, um, almost two years. So I'm extremely uh, happy. I still like it. <laughs> so, well, we definitely want to ask you about Clojure. That's kind of the, the thrust of this call. But before that, I also want to ask you about your internet handle because it's quite yes. unique. Giga squid. Yes. And it's like one of these things that you see it and you can't, you can never forget it. But I, mm -hmm. what can you tell us of the genesis of that? Okay. So this is like way back in the day. Um, I don't know if you remember this when there was a thing called AOL, yes. <laughs> AOL chat. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> so uh, I was working at a company and during lunch we would all like play Half Life together. Mm -hmm. um, and so my Half Life avatar was, um, player name was Squid. So we signed up for um, like AOL Instant Messenger and I put in squid as my name and like it was taken. I was like, darn. That's the <laughs> so then I put in mega squid and mega squid was also taken. Wow, man. So then finally giga squid was not taken and that's who I was. Giga squid was born. Mm -hmm. Well, that's much better alternatives. Usually people just throw like the year they're born at the end. You know? <laughs> and it's like that's always kind of dorky. So I think you did a good job with the prefixes. Thank you. And you've held that handle for a while then too, because I mean AOL messaged forever ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Twenty years uh, maybe. I haven't, I haven't actually. Yeah, I haven't actually been on there <laughs> for a really long time. You might but still it was have born, it. It was born there. Mm. So. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, let's get back on the closure here a little bit. You fell in love. Um, you've been working with it for two years, it sounds like. What was it about the language um, in your experience that you know turned you on so much? Yeah, I, uh, I guess I've been asked that before, and I never got to a chance to study uh, Lisp mm -hmm. in uh, college. So I don't know whether it was kind of Lisp that I fell in love with or... Closure, but I mean, Closure gives you access to JVM and Java Interop and concurrency and all that. So, I mean, <laughs> right. it's pretty sweet. Um, but the simplicity of the language um, really, really appeals to me. So, I guess maybe I put the cart before the horse a little bit. Maybe back up a split second and give the summary of Closure. We've already known it's a programming language, and like you said, it's kind of a Lisp. Can you just kind of give that overall summary? Sure, sure. So, uh, yeah, Clojure is a is a Lisp. Uh, so that means it has all these parens, and the parens sometimes scare people away. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it really you've just got to like not 
panic about the print. <laughs> they kind of go away um, after you work in it a while, especially with an editor that does matching and automatically inserts it for you. They just, um, you know, it, it, it's fine. Uh, so it's a Lisp on the JVM. Uh, that's the main language. It's a dynamic language. It's got uh, Java interop. And it has immutable data structures uh, that is really nice for concurrency. Uh. And also, uh, with an area that's really hot in Clojure land right now is ClojureScript, which uh, ClojureScript is a dialect of Clojure, but it compiles down to JavaScript. And JavaScript, as you know, just goes about anywhere nowadays. Right. <laughs> So um, there's some really exciting advances uh, in that. I mean, it's hard to keep up with. They just uh, more stuffs happening every day. Yeah. So I mean, just to to, to generalize a little bit, and feel free to correct these generalizations. Mm -hmm. But you know, you kind of have this divide in uh, programming languages between object oriented and functional. Mm -hmm. The Lisp language, you know, the Lisp kind of tree of languages um, have always been maybe not maybe always is a is a bad word, but have kind of had the reputation of being more academic, niche. Um, there's always people that love Lisps and will always hop into online conversations and tell you how much easier it would be to do in Lisp. Um, but overall, object-oriented has been kind of the dominant paradigm uh, over the last you know 20 years in programming. And yet Clojure seems to be like super popular. So uh, speak to that maybe. Yeah, so I think that's a combination of things. Um, and I think that's because Clojure has a really practical side as well. Mm. You know, it's it's really concerned about getting the job done and being able to interop um, is, is an important part of that. Um, and being able to run the JVM is, is like huge, right? Uh, and also there's just really uh, a lot of energy a lot of innovation in the community, and it's a really kind community. Um, just a lot of great people. So I think that that really has helped its success. And also, you know, Rich Hickey is is pretty brilliant. <laughs> so that having having him guide our um, language uh, is is really is really great. Um, was I was on a project that upgraded from, you know, one version of Clojure to the other, and all I had to do was change, change a version number. There was, it was totally stable. <laughs> Everything was compatible. And that's nice. that's really un, unusual that almost never <laughs> in happens. other languages, right? Yeah. So, right. Um, so, yeah, they're really focused on stability and uh, making sure that there's backwards compatibility and the language is moving in the right direction. Speaking of Rich Hickey, I think, Adam, we have to do a little bit of a shout-out to yes, Kevin Walters. have to. Yeah, so um, Devin Walters was or is uh, a closure guy who contributed to the changelog back in like 2013, and um, he wrote one post for us, and it wasn't even a guest post. It was like he was going to come on and be you know kind of a more of a regular writer, and you know life happens and whatnot. But he wrote a post called Rich Hickey's Greatest Hits back in looking at September 16, 2013, which is really just a list of like five or six awesome Rich Hickey talks. And that one post was probably the most popular post of the year for us, or at least one I would of the almost tops. say all time. I would almost say like <laughs> all time. It, it is. I, I'm I'm guessing here, but it I might be. I see so many shares. It's always on Twitter. Like it gets recirculated, <laughs> and people yeah, find us later. because of this. Yeah, years later, even 
I wouldn't. Yeah. I would probably say it's probably the top all time post of the change log. Yeah. Devin's a great guy. I actually, I worked with him. Um, Did you? About yeah, a little bit ago too. So he's he's a great guy. Yeah, we're after that post. We're like Devin, you gotta write some more stuff. Yeah, us, yeah, you uh, should. That's a great one. We'll <laughs> he's link, a smart guy. Yeah, we'll link that one up in the show notes. It's kind mm-hmm. of become yeah. a classic. And um, yeah, Rich Hickey gives great talks. Great presenter. Mm-hmm. Obviously, yeah, a very smart man. And and uh, seemed like he kind of invented closure almost in a vacuum. Do you know any of the history of the creation of the language? I don't know um, mm-hmm. his personal, um, like how he came to it all. I know that he did work on it uh, just solo for quite a bit Yeah. Um, before it was presented to, I think, a mailing list. And then everybody was like, wow, this is really cool. You know, can I help, um, you know, make it better? So then he had, um, you know, a few um uh, People just really help uh, put a shine on it and uh, bring it to the first version, real version. So, very cool. Well, let's get back to the to the language a little bit. And one thing mm-hmm. that you mentioned was that you said it runs on a JVM, and that's huge. I think is what mm-hmm. you said. Right. Why is that such a big deal? Just because um, the uh, the JVM is so production hardened and it's so efficient in what it does now after years and years <laughs> that uh, it, it it's just great to be able to run on that sort of platform. Um, and you, you can see that with the explosion of languages that are running within that ecosystem right now, like Scala and, um, mm-hmm. you know, JRuby and Groovy and all the other ones. So. Right. Yeah, and I think that because there are so many Java developers, so many people that are familiar with the JVM, mm-hmm. um, not only is it like production ready and hardened and has all these years of you know mind put in, or thought put into it, it's just also kind of a comfortable you know uh, kind of a not a relaxing but just a non confrontational. What's the word I'm looking for here, Adam? It's uh, it's just an environment people are used to, where if they're going to be switching, you know, the way they think about programming from an object-oriented mindset to a functional mindset, which Clojure mm-hmm. asks you to do if you're coming from the other right. side, it's nice to have at least something that's familiar. I think you're right. thinking expectations. The ex- expectations of working on the JVM are as such, and because of that, you can operate right. in more of a comfortable, calm uh, manner than maybe yeah. chaotic that you right. see in the craziness that is open source these days, which is the next newest, hottest thing disrupting the newest hottest thing from yesterday yeah plus right. you, don't you have access to all of the the libraries the Java you do. Library? Yeah, yeah yeah there's um there's full java interop um that's for the most part wrapper free so it's it's very comfortable to work with um other java classes and libraries um so yeah i mean if, if you're looking for um kind of a low risk kind of try it out. <laughs> you can yeah. either, you know, carve off a little section and just add a jar <laughs> and right. try it there. Or even in your tests, you know, you could just write some tests and closure and see how it goes. Um, so there's lots of ways to introduce it to your team and get used to it when you can just say, oh, well, let's just add this jar. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a nice way to to bring up ramp up adoption as well as allowing people mm-hmm. to dip their toes in the water as opposed to, you know, completely jumping off or into the pool, so to speak. Right. Right. 
Awesome. Well, I think we do want to ask about uh, popular use cases, like when closure makes sense, when it doesn't make sense, like what it's being used for, the types of software that you can build with closure. Um, we do need to take a sponsor break. So sure. let's take a minute here from uh, one of our awesome sponsors. And when we get back, we'll talk about what are the best times to actually use closure. We'll be right back. Imagix is a real-time image processing proxy in CDN. And let me tell you, this is way more than image magic running on EC2. This is way better. It's everything your friend and developers have dreamt of. Output to PNG, JPEG, GIF, JPEG 2000, and several other formats. And if you're like me, you've ever argued with your boss or a teammate about serving retina images to non-retina devices, you'll appreciate their open source dependency-free JavaScript library that allows you to easily use the ImageX API to make your images responsive to any device. Now, all of this takes a platform and the ImageX platform is built on three core values, flexibility and quality, performance, and affordability. When it comes to flexibility and quality, ImageX has over 90 URL parameters that you can mix and match to provide an unlimited amount of transformations that you need for your images. And they take quality very seriously. And because of their commitment to quality, several top 1000 websites in the world trust them to serve their images. Now, when it comes to performance, ImageX operates out of data centers filled with top of the line Mac Pros and Mac Minis, and they're set up for a completely streaming solution. This means your images never hit the disk. Images are served by the best SSD-based CDN for delivery around the world anywhere extremely fast. And while we're talking about speed, almost all the image processing happens on GPUs. This means transformations are super fast when compared to competing virtualized environments. And lastly, it's all about affordability. Everyone wants to save a buck. That's how the world works. Because ImageX processes close to a billion with a B images per day, they're able to make certain optimizations at scale and pass those savings on to you. To learn more about ImageX and what they're all about, head to imgix.com. Once again, imgix.com and tell them Adam from the changelog sent you. All right, we're back talking about closure with Karen Meyer, and we're interested in closure for a few reasons. First of all, I'm an object-oriented person, at least I have been. I'm very interested in functional. I tend to write more and more these days functional style inside of my object orientation, probably a lot thanks to Gary Bernhardt and some of his uh, influence on me, but also because it seems like it's very useful in production applications. And so I'm curious, like, what are some awesome use cases for Clojure? How is it being used out there in the wild? And maybe even on the flip side of that, like, when is it not a great idea to reach for the language? Sure. Well, I mean, Clojure is a general purpose language, so it's good for lots of things. Um, where it really shines is when you have to deal with concurrency mm. because uh, you have a very composable, um, simple language that's functional and you have immutable data structures and that really just uh, lets you handle concurrency very nicely. Um, so as a result, uh, you can see a lot of big companies like banks and 
financial and retailers. Uh, it's had a lot of adoption lately. Uh, mm. If you if you go to Walmart and you get a receipt from Walmart, your uh, receipts are all going through a closure program. What? Isn't that yeah. cool? That's so yeah. crazy. Yeah. So <laughs> it's 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 out there and people are using it um, in lots of places. A big company, startups, um, just everywhere. Um, it's in the places cool. you may not expect it then. <laughs> well, yeah, I, it, like I said, it's general purpose. So yeah. um, you could just really use it anywhere. I just love the idea of this invisible infrastructure that so many people don't have to care about. And even though we have so many problems with software and security and, you know, there's tons of leaky abstractions out there, there's a lot of stuff that's powering, you know, businesses and communities around the world. And most people don't even have to have any clue that their receipts from Walmart are coming through closure. But yeah, exactly. That's pretty exactly. cool. Yeah, the kind of nice thing, too, is um, now with ClojureScript, you can have closure on the front end and mm -hmm. on the back end, too. So you just really have a single language. Mm -hmm. That you're working with, which um, is kind of nice for me. You know, when I'm developing, <laughs> I don't have to go and switch to JavaScript or you know, CoffeeScript or or anything for the front end. Um, I can stay within the the same ecosystem. So, um, Closure so Skip, does that work pretty much just like any other transpiler would work? Yeah, or yeah. It uses the um, Google's, and this is the unfortunate name. Uses Google's Closure compiler, but it's like CL right. you know, and then SU. But it's, you know, closure and closure, which uh, <laughs> is unfortunate naming. Namespace yeah, collisions. Yeah, cool. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, it's, I think it's good for uh, just about anything where you wouldn't want to use it. Uh, I could only think maybe embedded, you know, where you have mm. really a small uh, footprint because, uh, you know, the JVM is, is pretty large. Although that's changing now, you know, with um, with ClojureScript and JavaScript. So if it, you can get small enough to put JavaScript on there, you can probably get small enough to put ClojureScript on there as well. What about the receipt application that you can think of an, as an outsider? Why do you think they chose Clojure over, say, another way to do receipting for Walmart? Is it because Walmart is a Clojure company or is it because that was you know one of the main languages their programmers use? Or is there yeah, a real reason well, why that was the best fit for it? I, I can't talk to their reasons <laughs> for or maybe not uh, their reasons, but like <laughs> something in that scenario, like that kind of scenario. Why does closure really fit that kind of scenario? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a JVM, right? So you're running a lot on the JVM, and then again, current currency that yeah. um, you're you're doing things um, eff effectively, and um, then it's less code, right? I mean, uh, with closure, it's really concise. Uh, so you have less code to maintain, um, and you can compose things and break them up very nicely. So it's just a, a nice place to be, I think. How about readability? Um, aside from the parentheses, let's just assume <laughs> we can get over the parentheses, which I, I, I think I probably can get over that. <laughs> um, but at the same time, maybe just because it's foreign, but uh, you know, you have the order of the arguments is flipped, I believe. Yeah. Um, isn't it pretty strange to read, at least at first? Well, maybe at first, but I think once you get used to it, then it's yeah. like really a really simple syntax, right? I mean, <laughs> what comes first? <laughs> it's always, a uh, you know, the function or the right. operator, and then all the other stuff is afterwards. So it's it's very beautiful in its um, 
Like this is the thing that comes first all the time. Yeah. I don't really need to think about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I think that actually improves its readability. It reminds me of uh, Adam when we were at Space City JS last spring. I don't know if you remember this, but there was a talk about how they built Tetris in ClojureScript. Do you remember that talk? I do. Yeah. Yeah, pretty interesting. And we were sitting way in the back, um, so we couldn't see the slides very well. But it was cool because he showed how, like, after they had kind of built this foundation of these functions in ClojureScript, a lot of the features that they needed kind of fell out of the fact that uh, mm. the language is designed in such a way that adding additional features later on was very easy, and they almost mm-hmm. got certain things for free. Yeah. Um, and he was showing different code blocks, and he showed the changes from one slide to the next to add the next feature, and you know the the feature would be like when the rogue is complete, like wipe out the for, the blocks uh-huh. of that rogue. And I was so far back that I could only really see the shape of it. I couldn't uh-huh. I couldn't read any of the code, but it had this very I don't know it was like an attractive shape. You know sometimes you can just look at a program mm-hmm. from far away, kind of yeah. do the squint test, yeah, and you can tell if it's like poorly factored or not. <laughs> exactly. And this even though I couldn't I couldn't understand it from from Latin or from Hebrew, mm-hmm. it looked really nice. And uh, I wonder if that's appealing to you or if it was just because I was so far away. No, I, I'm sure that's a part of it. I mean, it's just, um, you know, you get the joy factor of working in language too that you find pleasing. Right. <laughs> and, um, oh, we haven't talked about the REPL yet. Let's like the that. REPL is like a huge part of it. Uh, so the the REPL stands for read about print loop, but it, it really, it allows you to just interactively, I like to think of it as like sculpting your code. Like you can just get in there and get your data structures and just manipulate it in and get like super fast feedback. Um, and you can even poke at running code and explore it that way too. Um, so the REPL is an incredibly uh, powerful feature that just kind of really aids your development. I think it speeds it up. Uh, so yeah, that's a really uh, important part, part of it too. Very cool. Uh, one thing I was going to ask is when you, you mentioned kind of sculpting your data in the REPL, one thing about functional programming, and, and some of this could be my lack of understanding, so feel free to like educate as well here. Um, I will not be embarrassed if you educate me here. Um, it's like you're just kind of passing around this bag of data um, through these functions, and I'm I'm down with transformation and like chaining and all that, but it seems like it seems like you you could benefit from structure around that data, you know, some, from some object orientation. Do you miss that ever inside of Clojure, or is it just kind of like once you get used to it, you're just used to passing bags of data? And is even that even correct that you do that? Kind of just pass what I consider a hash or like a key value. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all it's all based on those data structures and like uh-huh. a map uh, right. data structure and like a vector data structure. Those are core. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do organize your functions, um, and you organize them usually by namespaces. Okay. Uh, so you can almost think about the, the way that you'd maybe organize um, objects. You'd use kind of namespaces for two. You keep groups of related uh, functions in a separate file or a namespace and um, then include them in whatever you're working on. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you can definitely organize your code um, so it's not just, <laughs> um, you know, just plain functions everywhere. Okay. You mentioned the community. You said it kind of has a great community. Can you uh, dive into that at all and give us some more detail? Yeah, it has a, a very vibrant um, community. In fact, there's a Slack channel now that just started up. It used to just be IRC, 
but somebody opened up a Slack channel. I think it's called closurians.slack.com. But I think it's got almost pretty much 2,000 people from like around the world. Or just That's like amazing. On this. Yeah, wow. yeah. And it's fabulous. You know, there's all sorts of different channels for different people's interests. You know, if they're in, um, you know, England or Russia or, or wherever, sometimes by a geography, sometimes by interest, if they're into a closure script or Datomic. Um, but, you know, it just brings everybody together and um, talking and sharing hints. Um, there's all sorts of interesting libraries that are being created every day. Um, let me see, there was a, I, there's one that just came out the other day that was really cool. Um, somebody put out a couple screencasts uh, called Perens of the Dead. Wow. So it was creating a closure script game. He'd only done a couple um, screencasts yet, but I watched them and they're fabulous. So he kind of codes it all as you're watching uh, through Emacs and uh, the REPL and closure script and, and everything. So I think it was the first video was probably about 15 minutes and the second one was 12. And he pretty much had like this working closure script game. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta find that one, Adam, and link that thing up. Yeah, friends of friends of the dead. What do you know about the meetup communities and and conferences out there for closure? Oh, well, there's a lot of good ones. Um, so closure conj is coming up in November. So that was actually the first uh, closure conference, and after that, there have been all sorts of other ones that have sprung up. There's closure west for the west coast, and now there's Euro closure for um, people in Europe. And um, I think there's some other ones, I'm forgetting their names, but um, some more and more are, are coming up with popularity. And um, so that's great. There's local community groups everywhere. I help run one in our local city, um, Cincinnati, Ohio. I help run the Cincinnati Functional Programmers Group. And that's a great group of people, too. Oh, and there's one coming up, too, um, Strange Loop. Uh, that's not just closure, but it's a, a lot of different languages. Um, but closure has a strong contingent there as well. But it's a fabulous conference. I guess while we're on the note of strange loop, Muzzle, mention your awesome talk, chemical computing. Yeah, yeah. So that's one I am going to be talking about when coming strange loop. So uh, yeah, chemical computing. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a strange thing. So I, I'm actually really excited that the talk had accepted because it's it's um, the idea of it came from papers that I found in a book that was entitled Unconventional Programming Paradigms. So right off, that really appealed to me. Uh, just See, I like that would, to... <laughs> that would just scare me. So you can tell we're different people. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, scary, put it away. Yeah, so I really like to be able to step back and um, kind of approach problems that we take every day and just think about it in a completely different way. Um, I find that really interesting. So what chemical programming is, is it's not actually programming with real chemicals, which, I mean, that would be super cool too. <laughs> but that's, that's not what it's about. It's about, ab it's, it's about abstract. Um, so you're using the kind of the metaphor of a chemical reaction to do your um, programming with. So uh, it would be, you kind of think, uh, so if you can take the example of um, like calculating a max, like, uh, you know, a max uh -huh. of some numbers, right? Right. 
you can think of, um, we'll say two numbers, like five and three, you can think of as molecules. And when these molecules react, they react according to a certain rule. And the to find the max, the rule is um, if you have a five and a three, um, two molecules, you're going to return two new molecules that are the same number as the biggest molecule that you had in. So a five and a three would react and return a five and a five. Uh, And basically you just do this with a big, you can just imagine like a big list of molecule numbers from one to a hundred. Okay. And then you mix them all up (laughs) and you uh, divide them into pairs And then each of those pairs reacts with one another. So it becomes two more numbers. Wow. And then you mix them up again. Until you just have one number. (laughs) And then you do the same thing. Right. And then as they react with one another, um, you will eventually, and this is the tricky part because you don't really know when. (laughs) Yeah. You will eventually get them all to be the same number, which is the maximum. So you can take a quote measurement, which Mm -hmm. would be take a look at all these number molecules and say, do a distinct on it. (laughs) And you should have, you know, the number 99 or, you know, 100, wherever you ended up (laughs) um, calculating the max from. And you'll have your result. But yeah, so that's a tricky bit, trying to figure out where to end. But the kind of awesome thing about um, that I found kind of experimenting with it and doing things that way is that this model really allows you to just turn concurrency up to the max because there's no sequences and there's no, no sequential sequentiality. I can't talk. Yeah. There's no prerequisites <laughs> um, for these yeah. two to do anything. Yeah. yeah. And if you think about it, like we as programmers, like we iterate over loops and do so much stuff in sequences, like all the time, if you would just think about how you normally calculate a max, that you just realize, wow, there's other ways to do it. I don't really even need to have do stuff in order like that. So it's, it's kind of an interesting way to think about it. And that's kind of what nature does, right? Nature doesn't line everything up and put it in a loop and process it all. <laughs> Well, maybe if you think about time, you have a 24-hour loop and just kind of keep going every day. It's a brand new day. No, I like that. It seems like a whole different way of of thinking about things. And is the purpose of these types of exercises is to just basically kind of get us out of our rut of thinking about solving problems in the same way? Is that what you're trying to do with this talk? Yeah, and and also... um just spreading the knowledge around of um, an, another way of thinking. Uh, I think when you have cross-fertilization of two different fields, mm-hmm. uh, like computer science and um, you know biology or nature-inspired solutions, that's an area where you have a lot of new ideas and research and innovation. And all the papers that I got all this information from right now, all the ideas are just in research right now. Uh So there's nothing in the wild 
<laughs> that has um, been used, but there could be, right? So this is kind of putting the knowledge out there and the seeds in people's minds and what might inspire them, like to think about this in a different way. You know, maybe that'll help them solve some sort of concurrency problem that they're having. Um, you know, who knows <laughs> yeah. what it might what it might spark. So that's the exciting part to me. Sounds like there's a, a little bit of a of a pattern here because not only do you have this upcoming chemical computing uh, talk, which by the way you have a nice rundown on your website. We'll link that one up in the show notes to those who can't make it to Strange Loop this year. Um, but you also have a programming language of your own. Uh, you also say that you're into AI and you're into robots. You have this thing called uh, Babar. I don't know if that's how you say it, but that's how I've always said it in my head. I don't head. know how to say it either. Babar. <laughs> I don't know. It's the elephant it from Babar the cartoons, right? Babar. I don't, I don't know. know. Well, so there was a there was a or a a cartoon called right. Babar. Yeah, yeah. Was that what it was called? Uh, and now? I would have so I was going to say a Babar. But is it Babar? Okay, yeah. yeah. I could be wrong. I remember but, the uh, elephant cartoon, yeah, but I don't remember how they pronounce it. In, That's in what it. it's named after. Yeah. But okay. I, I don't, I'm unsure just, about the pronunciation. Well, it's your language, so you can pick the, how you pronounce it. You know? <laughs> All right, we'll go with Babar. Okay, I'm Babar. almost certain it is Babar. I'm almost certain. Okay. I was a well, fan of the show. so <laughs> I, I like that show, too. Tell us about uh, your language. Yeah, so um, I, I kind of have this habit uh, that I like to try to dig into papers and um, kind of understand them. And one of the papers that I was looking at was by John McCarthy and it was entitled Elephant 2000. And this was, had a lot of his, they weren't entirely flushed out, but his ideas of what um, a programming language of the future should be. And I think it was entitled for the year 2000. <laughs> Right. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, so he had some very interesting ideas in here. And one that really aspect that really appealed to me was uh, the idea. And we talk about cross fertilization mm-hmm. that um, from philosophy of humans all speak in a language. Right. And if you look at the things that we do with our language, you can abstract that to kind of higher, a higher level. Like what, what do we try to communicate with each other with our speech? For example, if you say pass the salt in English and then you say pass the salt in Japanese, you know, you're, you're meaning the same thing, even though you're speaking different languages, mm-hmm. you're meaning you are want to, um, you want to request someone to do an action for you. So that kind of boils it down (laughs) um, to a different, a different level. And he thought that, and philosophers, he got this from philosophers, that this would be the same sort of principles would hold true if you wanted to communicate with somebody from Mars, right? You would still need to have requests you would still need to have um, assertions, asserting something like a fact. You would still have to have something like queries, you know, asking a question. Um, And those are, and, and not only that is the way that we would communicate with machines, right? Machines would have to, and computers 
would have to communicate with us on this level. And we can see the ones that I mentioned are pretty easy, right? We, we tell yeah. computers facts, um, you know, basically X is seven. <laughs> right. And um, we do queries, you know, what, what is the value of X? Uh, we do requests quite a bit a, a lot of times. But some things that he mentioned in the speech acts were aspects that our computers don't regularly have. And these are, um, you could have beliefs. <laughs> okay. And you could have, um, you could try to convince someone of something that might mm -hmm. change your belief. Uh, so it might affect your future actions. Uh, so that was kind of an interesting one to explore with um, what a computer might make of that. Another is um, when you, when somebody asks you to pass the salt and you agree, you have made a kind of obligation <laughs> yeah. to fulfill that request by kind of accepting it. So there, there's all sorts of these interesting kind of philosophical um, higher level, how do we interact with each other and how would that drive interacting with a computer? So that was kind of a, um, a roundabout <laughs> um, exploration. So I created this language to kind of explore some of this. So I made um, uh, the language through Clojure. I used Instaparse, which is a great parsing language. Uh, made my own language to uh, give be able to have beliefs and speech acts um, in my REPL or in my computer program. And then I use this to control um, like my AR drone. <laughs> wow, yes. So, so now yeah. it got interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the whole you could maybe give it goals and beliefs yeah. and communicate it with speech acts. So this is kind of interesting. So that was kind of fun. I had one point where, um, you, you know, it would – it would um, – fly up until it believed that it was high enough and that was, you know, at three meters or however it was. And uh, it was oh. kind of fun debugging that. So instead of saying stop when you're three meters high, say you believe that three meters is high enough. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I have, I have the belief. So when, yeah. when it flew off and I got stuck on the ceiling, I'm like, oh, you have a faulty belief, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I believe there's a ceiling there. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a different way of thinking about and, and debugging programs, a different way of interacting with them. Very cool. The syntax is pretty interesting, too, when you read through some of your examples on the, on the README. Mm -hmm. Just the way that you restructure. Uh, Jared, almost counter to what you said earlier about closure. Like, it's, is it kind of hard to read? But in this case, the way that you're asking the program, it, it's, it's sort of like similar to English. You know, it's very English-like. Yeah, there was there was kind of on purpose. <laughs> so I used a closure program to create a new language that had no prints. <laughs> right. <Rational> prints, <laughs> it also is kind of funny because you know when you start to use things like convincing and uh, requesting, you're you're kind of humanizing the, the machine at this point, right? Because you are yeah. trying to convince it to to power off. You know exactly. So I start to have Skynet thoughts. So how yeah. <laughs> how long have you been doing this? Like how old is this project? Just don't kill us. Oh, this one's a, a a few years old. I think I did it in like 2013. So um, is it stable? Is it where it's at? Are you playing with it anymore? 
It was it was mainly just kind of an exploratory thing for me. Um, so I haven't been adding to it, but um, you know it's out there, and I've I've had. I've had all sorts of interesting people comment on it. <laughs> and in fact, I found that uh, there was another real programming language, not just my toy programming language, that actually had speech acts in it. Um, oh. This is called the star programming language. Uh, so this is a language, I think it's used privately right now, although I think that he just open sourced it, um, Starlang. Mm. But a full featured language that has a notion of speech acts in it. I mean, not the requests, not not the beliefs, and the <laughs> but yeah. there's some other some other um, acts. But very awesome. Yeah. I thought that this is all things that I've never even heard of. So very cool things to to be exposed to. Uh, even the term speech acts. When I first hit your homepage of Babar or Babar, I was like, "What the heck's a speech act?" <laughs> you know, that is exactly right. This is why I love like looking at these papers. Yeah, because I read Elf in two thousand. I had the same thing. It came to speech acts, and I was like, "What the heck? What right. is that?" So it's kind of like just a thread that you can pull on, and then you yeah. can say, "Oh, speech acts is from this philosophy, John Searles," and and just follow the thread. And through trying to just understand, just like a couple paragraphs. <laughs> this paper it takes you off in different wonderful directions um that you never knew existed yeah when you talk when you start talking about reading these papers it reminded me i think um it's the the independent there's an independent mac developer i think it's super mega ultra groovy um which is smug is this company name which i thought was hilarious <laughs> but he does like audio synthesizing type of software mm -hmm. and i i saw a talk of his years ago where uh he says that he he reads research papers as a competitive edge in like the indie dev mm -hmm. scene to mm -hmm. like give himself a level above everybody else. And so he'll like go read an academic paper about signal processing or about some sort of audio intricacies. And he'll work that into his software, into his product, mm -hmm. because nobody else is doing that, you know. Yeah. And he's bringing these ideas from academia, which, you know, oftentimes they just kind of stop there and they mm -hmm. just sit on a, on a shelf, so to speak, and bringing them into you know, kind of a capitalist economy. I thought it was very interesting. But yeah. your take on it's just as interesting where it's like we can actually, you know, reach into these other areas and bring thoughts out that otherwise we never would have been exposed to. And they can actually make us better developers. Uh, they can affect the community in like kind of foundational ways. So it's pretty cool. Sure. Yeah. And, and this is actually, I think, one of the strong suits of uh, that I see in the closure community too, that there is a real... Um, friendly give and take with the academic community and the industry uh, that you'll see uh, at, at the closure conferences, there'll be uh, speakers from the academic world. And so they, we learn from them and then they turn around and then they learn from us too. And that cross fertilization is just valuable everywhere. Well, let's, uh, let's break there. We do have some closing thoughts, so let's break. We'll hear from a sponsor and we'll be right back. I have yet to meet a single person who doesn't love DigitalOcean. If you've tried DigitalOcean, you know how awesome it is. And here at the Changelog, everything we have runs on blazing fast SSD cloud servers from DigitalOcean. And I want you to use the code CHANGELOG when you sign up today to get a free month, run a server with one gig of RAM and 30 gigs of SSD drive space, totally for free on DigitalOcean. Use the code CHANGELOG. Again, that code is changelog. Use that when you sign up for a new account. Head to digitalocean.com to sign up. 
and tell them the changelog sent you. All right, we're back. We got Karen here. We're talking now about her book. I didn't say that before the break. My bad. <laughs> but uh, we've been waiting to talk about this book because this this whole call has sort of been uh, an introductory guide, maybe even a preface to your book potentially. But your book is a guide for those wanting to get in closure. It's as described by your um, by your about here on uh, on Amazon. The guide is this is the guide that's perfect it's perfectly thorough but gentle uh in terms of an introduction for closure so what is this book why did you write it uh where did it come from right so um i think one of the unique things about this book is that it's a combo it is two parts and it's part uh an introduction in the first half and then in the second half it's a training plan and i structured it that way um from trying to run. <laughs> so I had been one of these people, like everyone, you know, would run and I was like, Oh, I wish I could run. Oh, you mean actually mm-hmm. running with your feet? Yeah. Oh, like okay. running with your feet, like jogging. Yeah. And I was like, and I would try it and I'd be like, I just can't, I can't do it. You know, I would try running for 15 minutes and I would just feel like I was going to die. <laughs> so That's I was just like, this is just too hard for me. I just, I can't do it. And then I um, ran into one of these kind of like, teach yourself to run programs Mm. that was ease into 5k that had this thing. Like you just run for maybe a minute and then you walk for five minutes and then you run for another minute and then you gradually build up over the course of, you know, seven, eight weeks till you can finally actually run. And this was like, I mean, I guess I should have figured this out earlier, but it just was mind opening for me that I just didn't have to do it all at once. And the reason why I was having such trouble was I was trying to do too much at once. And (laughs) I thought, you know, this can apply to so many other areas. And in fact, I had, I was at a user group and I was talking to a, um, a fellow that wanted to learn closure. He said, yeah, I picked up a closure book and I read it over the weekend and I tried it all. And I just, I just don't get it. It's just too hard. (laughs) And I was like, that's the same thing. Like when I was running Yeah. <laughs> that it, if you're changing, I mean, the way that you think object oriented is kind of just a drastic difference from functional. It's a different way of approaching problems and that it's, it's just kind of like learning to think and do something in a new way that you just really can't do it all at once. I mean, maybe some people can, <laughs> but I certainly couldn't. And it took me a long while to kind of mold my brain to think in a different way and approach problems that way. So this book was um, all about kind of approaching it um, and giving people the, the, the path that says, yeah, it's okay. Let's ease into it. Let's start simple. This is not going to happen. You're not going to pick up this book and all of a sudden be totally knowing how to code closure in like two days, right? It's going to take seven weeks. And I, at least for me, and I hope other people out there, that just that knowledge of, okay, it's just not going to happen right away, and <laughs> that's okay, is <laughs> just a very valuable thing. So it provides a structured training plan um, between week one and week seven. It starts off using some open source um, uh, website called Foreclosure, where you can solve problems with the community in a um, kind of a 
almost a test-driven way, which is nice. And then it moves into doing some katas. I've made a GitHub repo, and it's totally open source. You can go there. It's called um, Wonderland Katas. Um, so you're doing katas for closure and developing your skills in little bigger chunks. And then the final week is actually developing your own web app. So, And by the time you're done with that, <laughs> you've had your brain a chance to kind of think a different way, and it, it's, it, it, it becomes a lot easier. And you can run a 5K. And you can run a 5K. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a great example to, to pause on the tech side of things from this conversation and just say that this is, to me, it seems like a really great example of living your real life, not just in front of a computer, and having profound uh, new thoughts that totally impact what you do in your day job, in programming. Uh, I think it's amazing how learning to run and influence you to write this book and then ultimately, hopefully, potentially influence so many people out there to uh, take their time learning closure through your book. Yes. <laughs> That's really cool. I mean, it's it's amazing to see that. Yeah. I think it's a great conceit for an intro book. I loved when I just saw that it was an intro slash training plan for closure. And I almost feel like I need a training plan more than an introduction because, you know, I've talked to people about it and I've seen the syntax and, you know, I've I've got a little bit of an intro already. But a training plan, that's something that I feel like I can really execute on, you know. Uh, sometimes you have a book that just intros you to a language. It's like, well, now what do I do? Yeah. You know, but I just like yeah. write a blog, you know, <laughs> just right. make a web app. Um, but one that actually takes baby steps with it, with you through it is, is a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it totally depends on your learning style, but hopefully this yeah. will key into um, the people that, that appreciate that as their learning style. I have a question about uh, the Wonderland closure Kadas. Mm -hmm. And the question, I guess, is why you chose Kadas over Cohen's since Cohen's are so popular and they're very similar to Kata's. Right. So, yeah. So what, <laughs> I guess a lot of people are, what's the, what's the difference? So I'll give you my definition of it. Maybe it's, it's not your definition of the difference of them. I always think of Kata's being um, a little bit bigger um, chunk problems than Cohen's. Um, so that's just my interpretation of it. Um, but is that, is that yours or do you have a different interpretation of it? I, my interpretation was just more or less learning th something through iterative practicing, not so uh, much okay. the, the variant to, that you well, went think, to. Isn't Cohen's the purpose is like it's test driven. That's like the whole thing with Cohen's. But with Kata's, it's you do the same thing over and over and over again. Is that right? Or am I off? Do I not mm, understand that? That, that? that could be. <laughs> it's like I've heard I've heard various definitions, but I'll tell you okay. I'll tell you tell what it is. And then okay. you can tell me uh, the, uh, <laughs> what camp it falls into. OK, so um, the Wonderland um, code examples, they're they're independent little um, closure projects and they do have tests. So they come with tests, uh, failing tests, and you need to provide the code to make those tests pass. Um, and then once you have a solution, you're welcome to share that as a link in the README too, so people can learn from each other as well. Um, so I don't know exactly what camp that falls into. <laughs> that's what it is. Well, you could probably ask five people and get six opinions. That's, yeah. that's true. That's, I was going to say that because <laughs> I was just curious because they, you know, by definition, they seem pretty similar. And yeah. and I was just thinking like with so many Cohen's out there. 
you know, sometimes you might ride the coattail of the popularity of other Coens to popularize yours, for example. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I, I got inspired just because the book um, follows a lot of examples of Alice in Wonderland. So the the repo, um, the exercises, the Wonderland exercises, um, take their inspiration from Lewis Carroll. And he actually was a really big puzzlist. <laughs> so he, huh. he, he really enjoyed doing puzzles. There's, um, there's an alphabet cipher that he had published. Um, there was, um, I, I don't think he originated this, but he would, is documented that he used it with children a lot. It's the, it's a river crossing puzzle. I don't know if you've ever heard that where you've got like a, a fox and a goose and a bag of corn and then you've got to get them across the river and you can only yeah. carry you know whatever across at one time and they right. gotta not yep. eat each other so um that sort of thing i i do love your appreciation i'm not sure if it's uh, that way or not but for just the some of the the art that comes with this so when you're reading you've got alice kind of peeking I'm not sure what she's peeking into. I think she's finding a door that's super small and she's going to go into it. But, yeah. you know, with each of these, um, I'm not sure. Do you call them, are they called katas then? Each individual one is a kata? Yeah, that, that's what I call them. Okay. But like you said, <laughs> the, the terminology is up for grabs, I guess. So in that case, you got, but you have this art and this playfulness. And I love, so since I asked you about Cohen's, I, I do appreciate your appreciation for Alice in Wonderland and how you've, played each of these katas off of uh, probably some of your appreciation for that book. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, thanks. I, I, yeah, it's just Alice in Wonderland's a fabulous, a book um, that speaks to people on so many levels. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's one of those books that uh, are stories that you can read, you know, several times and still never get all the nuances that are in involved, you know, from mm -hmm. everything from the plot to the characters, to the, yeah. you know, the ways they speak, things like that. You just, there's always this constant onion effect that you can keep going layer by layer, deeper, deeper. Uh, no pun intended back to Alice, of course. Yeah, it's, it's timeless. Well, speaking of inspiration, I guess we should go into our closing questions now. And our closing question that we ask pretty much every guest is one about inspiration. So if you had to pick somebody out there who would be your hero when it comes to programming, somebody who inspires you, a mentor, or a role model, uh, who would you name as your programming hero? I would name um, Jim Weirich. He actually passed away last year, but I had the um, privilege of working um, with him and uh, getting to know him personally. And not only was he a brilliant man, but he was one of the kindest and most inspiring men um, that I ever got a chance to know. So um, for I'm, I'm sure you've heard of him. Like he's, he was the oh, creator yeah. of the Rake Library. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, just a beautiful man. Um, he was kind to everybody. Uh, you know, it didn't matter whether you were a programmer or not. Uh, a lot of times during lunch breaks uh, and we'd fly our drones together. You know, the, the janitor would be coming down the hall and you'd say, oh, come over here. I'm going to show you something and like show him how to fly the drone and show him the code behind it all and everything. And he was just a, a, a naturally just beautiful person and a wonderful teacher. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> very inspiring. Yeah. Amen to that one. I think uh, we hear Jim as a hero often and he well-deserved. He, uh, I think we had Justin Searles on. Um, man, it's been a while now, but I, I definitely remember him having – 
similar kind of affectionate words for Jim and mm-hmm. uh we have, Adam and I are both you know have Ruby in our roots yeah. so we were affected and still use rake to this day yeah. <laughs> uh, by Jim not only his software lives on but you know just the kind of man he was uh still affects and is still like close in the hearts of many people to this day so absolutely definitely Adam you want to take the next one well, the, the next one is always a fun one because it allows you to be a little introspective and, and more shout-outs to popular open source that may or may not be popular yet. Um, but in terms of your radar, what is out there, either in just in programming or open source, what's out there that's interesting to you that if you had a free weekend, I'm not sure how often that happens for you, but if you had a free weekend, what would it be that you hack on? Well, there, there's like new stuff all the time, right? <laughs> at least for me, there's like shiny stuff. I'm like, oh, I want to look at that. <laughs> oh, I want to look at that. All right. But um, right now, I'm just, um, I'm really just entranced with the chemical programming and the chemical computing and just kind of looking into that a little bit more. And there's some more papers about that and maybe practical applications. Um, or practical potential applications because there's not the while in distributed computing. Um, self-organizing systems and self-healing systems. Uh, so I I would probably like to explore um, a little bit more in that area. As far as other kind of cool um, libraries and languages, um, one that I've contributed to um, quite a bit in uh, the past months is Pixie Lang. Um, and that's a new language by um, Timothy Baldridge, and he's a really smart guy. But it's um, it's a Lisp <laughs> again, but it's it's uh, made in R Python um, using the PyPy toolchain. Mm. So um, it compiles down natively. It's super fast and um, can access native libraries. So it's kind of exciting and different. It's closure inspired. Um, but it doesn't necessarily um, stick to um, be compatible with Clojure. Says it has magical powers. Do you know what those magical powers are? <laughs> I think that it's it's supposed to be fast and light. Um, but it it's you know it's a great language if you especially if you if you want to use fairy gifts. <laughs> there you go. But the I think the package manager is is named Dust. Which is ah. pretty cool, right? So you can have pixie dust. Yes. Love it. Yeah. Uh, always a play on words. Love that. <laughs> but that's a fun, it's a fun um, project and um, they're very open in uh, contributions and friendly. There's a nice chat room. So if you're looking to get involved in kind of a cool language with nice people, that's a nice side project. Very cool. We'll link that up in the show notes. So for those listening, uh, if you if you've listened to the show before, you know that we take pretty thorough show notes, um, so we do a pretty good job on that. This is episode 171, so you can find everything that we've talked about today, show notes included, at changelaw.com 171. Um, any closing thoughts, Karen, before we take it home? No, I think I've <laughs> said it all, but it's been fun. Well, I do want to mention that your book, Living Closure is available for order now so it's not like it's a pre-order she's written it it's out there now so if you wanted to go check it out there'll be a show note for that Uh, i'll link in the show notes for that but uh check out the book uh have fun learning closure if you pick up the book um as you know we release the show every friday so come back here next friday if you're not subscribing yet go into itunes and subscribe and while you're in the nozzle 
Go ahead and rate the show if you've listened to it before. We also ship a weekly email on Saturdays called Change Law Weekly. You can find that at changelaw.com slash weekly. And because we love those kinds of words, we also have a nightly, which is essentially uh, GitHub trending on crack. It's got lots more stuff in there. Maybe crack's a bad word to use on for that. Steroids, on steroids. On, on steroids. Yeah, on steroids. <laughs> on crack would not... be worse. <laughs> okay, well, it's on steroids. Thank you for the correction, Jared. Well, read it, and then you decide if it's on crack <laughs> okay. or if it's on steroids. Yeah. And we have uh, an open repo for that if you want to give us some feedback. It's ping on uh, on GitHub, so find us on there. Uh, but Change All Nightly is pretty cool. Changeall.com slash nightly. Subscribe to that. We had uh, some pretty awesome sponsors of this show that help us make it possible. CodeChip, love those guys. Imagix, a brand new sponsor and a very cool platform for serving images. Uh, very unique. And then also DigitalOcean. Who doesn't love DigitalOcean? So... Those are our sponsors. Thank you so much for listening. And Karen, thank you so much for coming on the show and just schooling us in the world of closure and everything that you're about. So cool having this conversation with you. So thank you for joining us. And uh, let's all say goodbye. Thanks. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you.